listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. As you're doing that, you can be opening your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. Can you believe it? We're 25 chapters in and to our study of Genesis, as we try to figure out who is this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we've already seen the story of Genesis. It's kind of this story of repeated failure, especially the first 11 chapters. The first 11 chapters are just us descending into more and more and more evil and plan after plan not working, basically because we can't keep it together for five minutes. Then in chapter 12, God reveals himself to this nobody, this nomad named Abraham. And starting then, he's saying, okay, now I'm going to start setting a pattern. This is how a fallen people can have a relationship with God and how we can undo the garden. And so from chapters 12 to chapters 24, we went on this journey with Abraham. It's really an education, educating him and educating us, how we as fallen people can have a relationship with God. Well, now in chapter 25, we, we reach this transition moment. But all that God has taught us, we're going to see, is going to remain the same. Nothing is changing. All God wants from us is faith. That's what he wants, which is just another way of saying he doesn't want anything from us. He wants us to trust him. That's what he wants. Now, what part of our lives does he want us to trust him with? The whole thing. The whole enchilada, all of it, that's been the education of Abraham. Now we're supposed to be asking, but what comes next? What comes after Abraham? Me and my family, we're huge fans of the musical Hamilton, okay? It's in my wife's minivan. It's going like on 24-7, these songs from Hamilton. And there's one part in the musical where George Washington is stepping down. And that's unfathomable. That's crazy. How can that happen? I mean, he was the general of our army. He's the first president. He is the main figurehead of this young nation. And so King George comes out and sings a song and asks, what comes next? What comes after George Washington? What comes after the guy who's been there every step of the way? And we're in a what comes next moment here in chapter 25. And so as the reader, as we're reading this story, pretend like you don't know the end, we're supposed to be asking questions like, okay, Will God still be involved? Or does he set it and forget it? I mean, he's done enough, you could argue. God's done plenty. They've seen some amazing things. Is he going to hand the baton to us and say, okay, it's up to these humans now. Let's see if they can figure it out. What will future generations be like? What are Abraham's kids and grandkids going to be like? Again, they've, they've seen a lot. Isaac saw, he was there on Mount Moriah. He saw the angel stay Abraham's hand. He's heard all from Abraham, all these stories. He himself has been a walking miracle. So surely Isaac is going to follow the Lord, and surely he's going to teach and train his kids to follow the Lord. Well, to answer these questions, Genesis 25 is going to introduce us to the dumpster fire that is the human family. Turns out it's a little complicated when it's one guy. It even gets more complicated as the family grows. But... God's promise of redemption continues. Again, this is the same story, different verse, not because of any human effort or activity, simply because God is in control. And here's the thing about God being in control. When God's in control, you know what that means? 
It means he's in control. And it means you are not. God's sovereignty. Here's what it means. It means things happen by God's power, to which we usually shout, amen, God's power, I'm on board. And God's sovereignty means his purpose, to which we say, hashtag blessed, love that. And it happens through his process. And that's usually part, the part where the record scratches and everything goes silent. And we say, wait a minute, wait a minute. But can't, God, can't you do it my way? And God's answer is no, no. If you want my power, if you want my purpose, it is going to be through my process. And with that in mind, let's begin reading Genesis 25. We're going to skip ahead to verse 19. And let's look beginning in verse 19. It says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram. I'm going to get these out. The sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The child struggled together within her. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus... Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So we get this birth story of these twins, Esau and Jacob. It's the story of the next generation, of this growing family. Remember, it's going to be like the stars in the sky. And this growing family begins again with barrenness, with barrenness. So it tells us Isaac and Rebecca were 40 when they married. This is probably 20 years later. So they're probably about 60 years old, and Rebecca is still barren. To make things worse and make even less sense, if you back up a few verses, we find out Ishmael. You remember Ishmael, the, the descendant that Abraham tried to make happen on his own, God rejected? He's already got 12 sons. Already got 12. And they're already like princes and forming their own kingdoms. And here is Isaac, the chosen one, barren. And we're supposed to say, hold up, God, you're doing it wrong. This is not how things were supposed to happen. In fact, if we were writing the story, by now, Isaac and Rebecca, they'd have hundreds of kids who all slept through the night starting the first day. They never had earaches, you know. Uh, their diapers didn't even stink. That's how we would, we would write the story. And yet, we get this theme of barrenness. And it, we, we see this theme over and over and over. So we already saw it with Isaac, uh, and, or we saw, already saw it with Sarah before she had Isaac. Later, we're going to see this with Hannah, uh, the mother of the prophet Samuel. And she goes, and you've heard the story, she goes and pleads to God, for God, for the power to change her situation. And there's a reason, y'all, there's a reason this keeps happening throughout the Old Testament. See, in the ancient Near East culture, barrenness was like the worst thing they could imagine. It, it was seen as a sign of death and judgment. So back then in that culture, they didn't have a full understanding like we do of, of the afterlife and especially of resurrection. So in their culture, the way you lived on was your family lineage, your descendants. That's how, that was their version of eternal life in most places. And while you were here on earth, that was also the way you thrived, the way you became wealthy, the way you became important. And so childlessness was the worst thing they could imagine. It was a sign of God's reproach and judgment. It's almost like eternal death 
for them. And so this shows up over and over and over again in the Old Testament because it's foreshadowing the gospel. God does the impossible. He brings life out of death. He removes shame and judgment and instead gives us the most precious thing, a child, his son. So the text here, it's echoing these messages. It is saying, this is impossible unless he does it. This is not natural. It is supernatural. It is not man-made. It is God-made. It requires his power. It requires his purpose. And that means it's going to be his process, even when it doesn't make sense to us. And so we find out in verse 21, God does work his power. And through his power, uh, Rebecca becomes pregnant with twins. This is amazing until we read the next verse. So we, we get to a verse, one verse before Rebecca is already questioning what God is doing and what's going on. Because we find out in the next verse, there's a struggle going on within her. These twins are battling it out. And so she asked this question that y'all, I can identify with this. If it is thus, why is this happening to me? Now, I've never said it that way. But she's saying, you know what? God, I've seen your power. What's up with your process, though? What, why does it have to be like this? In fact, this isn't the way I thought it was going to be, God. You ever been there? You know? This pain isn't how I imagined you would be working in my life. Now, to be fair to Rebecca, uh, most texts translate this word struggle, and that's a really mild way of putting it. The, the word literally, it's the word for two armies just ramming into each other. It's what it's the word for. So literally, it's describing two armies smashing each other together inside of her womb. And so at this point, she's like every person that gets a fruitcake at Christmas, right? Can I, thanks for the gift. Can I re-gift it? Can I exchange it? Can I return it? Something like that. She is hoping this gift came with a receipt. And so she goes to God and she asks, well, what's, what's going on here? And God gives her this grand explanation, far grander than her cell. He, he doesn't say, hey, it's just indigestion. You know, go on bed rest. No, no, no. He says, this is about two nations in a perpetual struggle. Rebecca, I'm doing something so much bigger than you. So he says this thing, this thing that would have been insane to them. He says, the older is going to serve the younger. Now, in, in almost every culture stretching throughout history, 99% of people, the firstborn gets all the inheritance. That's how it always works. The right of the firstborn, that's what everyone did. Everybody. And it seems natural, right? The first one comes along, gets the first. That, only, that seems to follow the natural order. But again, we get this recurring theme. We've already seen it several times in Genesis. It's going to keep showing up over and over and over again. The one who should get the blessing, according to us, is not the one. We've seen it with Cain and Abel. We'll see it with Joshua. We'll see it with David. Remember, David was so low down the totem pole, he wasn't even around when they came to pick out who was king. They left him out in the field because there was no way it was going to be him, right? In this struggle, God's not going to follow our convention. He's not going to follow common sense. He's not even going to follow the natural order. God will follow his own process to accomplish his purpose. It's not about institutions. It's not about norms. It's not even about what makes sense to you. He 
chooses. That's how this thing goes. And so Rebecca, what she had to do, she, she trusted God with his power to provide the child. Now she has to trust his process. They're two sides of the same coin. And so as we keep reading, we're going to meet these two brothers next, Esau and Jacob. And they could not be more opposite. Let's pick it back up. Verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So first thing we need to understand as we meet these next two characters, Jacob and Esau, and we'll see them over and over again as Genesis unfolds. In fact, Jacob is one of the richest, most complex characters in all of Scripture. We're going to know more about him than we know just about anyone else. But you got to know this up front. If you're looking for good guy, bad guy, you're going to be very frustrated with this story. There is no good guy. In fact, both together represent the fallenness of human nature. We ought to look at both of them and see the worst of ourselves in both of them. So we, we hear about Esau. He comes out first. We're told he's red. Uh, I'll refrain from any redhead jokes. We're told that he's really hairy, to which I would say, nothing wrong with that. Okay, easy. Uh, we're told that he's a skillful hunter. He's an outdoorsman. He's manly. He's strong. He's confident. Y'all, he'd fit in right here in East Texas. We'd all love this guy. He's a good old boy. He's the prototype of a mountain man. But there's something the text is foreshadowing. The text is describing him like an animal. He's like an animal in the way he looks. He'll be like an animal in the way he acts. He is a slave to his desires. He only lives off immediate gratification, and it is going to be his downfall. Then we meet Jacob. Interestingly, Jacob He's not described by how he looks initially. He's described by how he acts, by his deeds. And his name sounds like heel. Because even right as they're coming out, he's grabbing Esau's heel, trying to be that firstborn. He's fighting for it. We go on to find out. So they name him Jacob. It's got that negative meaning, that negative connotation of a heel grabber, which means like a, an overreacher. He's devious. He's ambitious. He's a con artist. We find out he's not as manly uh, as Esau, while Esau is out killing things, Jacob's in the tent, and that's where all the women were. He's in the tent with all the women, and he's learning to cook. But that's a skill that's going to come in very handy soon. We're told he's a quiet man. and In Hebrew, that word has the idea of, of being sound or solid. And so what, what it's trying to communicate is that Jacob, he's, he's level-headed, he's controlled, he's very, very smart and thoughtful and cool and calculating. He lives by his wits, and so physically he may be weaker, but he is cunning. And most of us probably wouldn't have liked him. Most of us probably would have preferred Esau to Jacob. In Jacob, we have this recipe for disaster. So he's, a, he's an ambitious con man who's good at what, a, what he does, essentially, who's very smart. But there's a, there's a tension. There's kind of an open question mark in his name. So his name, that, that heel grabber, it does mean kind of a conniver. 
But heal, it can also mean one who follows. It can mean a good, loyal, faithful follower, you see. And that's the central tension of Jacob's life. We'll, we'll unpack this as we go throughout in future weeks. But the, the central tension is, will this ambitious heel grabber ever submit to God and his ways? Can the self-sufficient deceiver become a follower of the God who says, it is my power, it is my purpose, it is my process. That's what Jacob's journey is going to be. So we've met the twins. Now we'll meet, we've met the parents. We're going to find out a little bit more about them. And by just this short sentence, we find out that this family is actually the only kind of family that exists, a dysfunctional one. And so in addition to all the kids' shortcomings, we find out there's also parental favoritism. It's tragically true. Isaac and Rebecca, who've prayed for so long for these kids, once they come, they choose their favorites. And what's interesting is the text, it's particularly hard on Isaac. It's subtle. It's easy to miss. But he's being really hard on Isaac. For one, there's no record of circumcision. Even though in previous generations and future generations, the text goes out of its way to point out that they followed through on the sign of the covenant and circumcised their children, we have no record of that in Isaac. And remember, this circumcision is a sign of this ongoing covenant. It was supposed to remind them that all they learned about God, all that he had revealed himself, was supposed to be passed down to future generations. They were supposed to do more than have kids. They were supposed to raise their children in the ways of God so as to create a kingdom of priests. That's what the covenant was all about. That's what they were supposed to do. But we find out Isaac, he doesn't circumcise their kids, and then we find out he prefers the wrong son. And his reason for preferring Isaac has nothing to do with God, has nothing to do with God's ways, has nothing to do with the future. Esau satisfies Isaac's appetites. He brings him meat to eat, and that makes him his favorite. That's it. And we have another case of role reversal. The son feeding the father. It should be the father feeding the son, and not just with meat, but with the truth of who God is. And so in Isaac, we see a man, he's, he's learned to go to God for what he wants. He's but he's not passing on, he's not perpetuating the ways of God for the next generation. He wants God's power. He even seems fine with his process so far, but he's forgotten the purpose. The purpose is bigger than you're just supposed to just eat and mate. You are here to transmit God's ways. The purpose is blessing to all nations. The purpose is to reunite God and man who are separated in the garden. The purpose is God's plan of redemption, and Isaac seems to have no interest in it. One of my favorite shows that's been around lately is a show called The Mandalorian. I don't know if y'all have seen this show. I really like it. In fact, it may or may not be the ringtone on my phone. Nobody call me right now and test that. I hope I turned my ringer off. Uh, And this is the perfect poster for this show, okay? Melissa likes to make fun of it because you can see this guy wears a mask, so he's just this expressionless guy just walking around. That's what she says. For t- it's two seasons of a guy with no expression walking around. And sure enough, every time I'm watching it and she walks by, she's like, there he is, just no expression, guy walking around. And that's, that's the whole show. And she's right about that. But I love it. And here's the, one of the reasons I love it. The show starts off, you think this guy's a lone ranger. He's a space bounty hunter. 
just no, no relationships going around. But as the show unfolds, you find out, actually, he's not a Lone Ranger. He comes from this whole community of space bounty hunters that stretches back generations. And so what he knows was passed down from somebody who passed it down from somebody who passed it down from somebody else. And they have something they tell each other, particularly when things aren't going great. When they have to do something that defies defies convention or puts their own life at risk or doesn't make any sense in the moment or even isn't in their personal best interest, they look at each other and they say, this is the way. This is the way. Now, it's a way of saying my life is bigger than myself. I know I have to do something right now uh, that defies convention, but I'm following that way because I received something passed down to me, and that dictates my decisions over and above any present circumstances I find myself in. So for two seasons, his present circumstances has been the caretaker of Baby Yoda. Surely you've seen Baby Yoda around. Took the world by storm a couple years ago. And look how cute and adorable he is. Y'all, this might be the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life. And it'd be easy to think. So he, he risks his life, puts himself in all these terrible situations to protect baby Yoda. And it'd be easy to think, well, he's doing that because look how cute. He's so cute and adorable. How could you not protect baby Yoda? That's not why he's doing it. That's not why he's doing it at all. He's doing it because he's part of a covenant community. And those who came before him have taught him This is the way. This is the way. This is how we do it. There's a great commentator on Genesis, a guy named Leon Cass. He says this chapter, chapter 25, is helping us highlight the perpetual problem of perpetuating. He says as families grow, that can be problematic. And he says the problem is the fertile womb, source of life, is also the breeder of conflict. Can I get an amen? Yes. So God's purpose of salvation, he said, the text is telling us, y'all, it's going to require more than just fertility. Birthing more humans into this world is just going to keep producing more and more and more sin. We've already seen it with Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel should be in the back of our minds as we read this. The first brothers just murdered each other. And now we have the next set of brothers. And it looks like this is all happening again. Here we go again. The text is saying, we need God as much as ever. How on earth will the way be passed down generation after generation? It will require the supernatural, ever-present power, purpose, and process of God ushering humanity every step of the way, generation after generation. That's what it's going to take. And to further show this, next we get an episode from the twins' lives. It is a short Uh, story, but it tells us all that we need to know. Picking up in verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew. I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. So Jacob, the cunning brother, sets a trap. Esau, the hunter, he becomes the hunted. 
We find out he comes in, you know, from all his being manly out there. And he's not just hungry, he's hangry. He is starving. And Jacob is ready. Everything about this story says this was a premeditated, well-set trap. This is probably what Esau went out and did every day. He know, Jacob knows Esau, like all of us, is going to be most vulnerable to his appetites when he is tired, when he is exhausted. And Jacob, wouldn't you know, has just filled the tent with this aroma of the stew at just the right moment. And there's actually something really funny in here. So he comes in. Esau calls it red stew. He thinks it's some big meaty stew. Later we find out it's actually just lentils, which goes to show that just ever since the fall, vegetarians have been trying to force meat substitutes on all the carnivores out there. It goes all the way back. That's what he does. He, he pulls a fast one on him. Esau, in this episode, he talks like an animal. He acts like an animal. Literally, the way he says it, when he says, let me eat some of that stew, says, let me gulp some of that red stuff, this red stuff. That word gulp, it, it's the word they would use for stuffing, force-feeding livestock with food. He's animal-like, he's impatient, and he just follows his unbridled appetite. And then we have this little comment. Turns out you are what you eat. His descendants will be named after this red stuff. And that's not a compliment, y'all. That is a tragedy. They could have been heirs to the promise of God, but instead their whole life is just about stuff. I'm so glad we've evolved past that, haven't we? And he says, sell me your birth. Jacob says, sell me your birthright. He is ready immediately. Jacob knows what he wants. This is the purpose of the trap the whole time. He wastes no time. And this birthright, y'all, this is property rights material inheritance it's the responsibility of family leadership and it's the passing on of spiritual blessing it's all of that the physical and the spiritual it's essentially taking the father's place in all respects this is a big ask there is nothing bigger jacob could have asked for verse 32 esau he's, a, he's being a drama queen i'm about to die he's not he's gonna eat one bowl of stew and then he's gonna be fine he's not about to die and then from Esau's own mouth comes the central question. What good is a birthright to me? His question reveals his true values. It's all about me. What does it matter what happens after I die? If I'm about to die, what, what do I care about what comes next? I'm going to get as much enjoyment as I can now with no regard for what comes after. God's ongoing work of redemption, his building of his kingdom, the blessing of nations, it's of no use to me. My life is the only thing of value. So God is showing us Esau is unfit for the covenant. And then in verse 34, even the way it describes his action, we get four short verbs, ate, drank, rose, went. No thought, no regret. Again, he's like an animal that he simply satisfies his appetite with no regard towards what is coming next. And then the last line is alarming. It tells us he despised his birthright. Nowhere else in Genesis does the text pause to make a comment on what one of the characters has just done. We get all kind of crazy stories. Usually it's some kind of crazy, unbelievable story that makes you feel like your family and that dysfunctional after all, and these people are nuts, and then the text is like, you figure it out. You deal with it. 
Not here. Here it goes out of its way to point out the error of what Esau has done. And so there should be warning sirens going off. Beware, beware, don't do this. He says he has disdain for his birthright. That, that carries an a air of disdain, an air of superiority. He saw no value in it. So if he's having a garage sale, that birthright's a thing where he's like, I don't care, just take it. It's got no value to me. He had no value for anything bigger than his stomach. I like the way Thomas Carlyle said it. He says, Esau is the kind of man of whom we are in the habit of charitably saying that he's nobody's enemy but his own. But in truth, he is God's enemy because he wastes the splendid manhood which God has given him. Passionate, impatient, impulsible, incapable of looking before him, refusing to estimate the worth of anything which does not immediately appeal to his sense, preferring the animal over the spiritual, he is rightly called a profane person. The text is saying, if you are a profane person, if your, if your life is no bigger than your own appetites, you disqualify yourself from the covenant. And it's not because God rejects you. It's because you have rejected him. You trust your way over his way. And would you believe it? That's how the story ends. That's the end of the story. It's not exactly a Hollywood script. It's definitely not a Disney script. So what are we supposed to take? What can we glean from this story? Well, I was thinking this week, you know, years later, years after this happened, Moses, he's sitting there writing down the account of this story uh, to introduce a new generation, the generation that's going to be wandering through the desert soon, introduce them to who this God is, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God they had heard about, they'd heard rumors about, but they did not know themselves. And he's trying to tell them, how do sinful, fallen people have a relationship with God? How can God be the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Faith. Faith. And I think in this text we can glean that faith is trusting the process. Faith is trusting the process. You've seen his power. He's revealed his purpose in your life. So trust his process. God will do things differently than you think he should. It won't make sense at times. You will think he's doing it wrong. When you find yourself wandering in the desert, like the Israelites are going to, and like their father Abraham had before. When you find yourself waiting longer than you ever imagined, like Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca had to. You'll expect it to be smooth, but instead it will be a battle, a painful battle at times. But remember, either God is in control or he isn't. He's in the, either in control or he's not. And we love God's control when we need his power, right? Or when we need his purpose to bless us. That's the stuff we write the worship songs about. You know, how great is our God? He's amazing. But when God says, it's also my process, I'm doing it my way, not your way, Instead of singing his praises so often, we just shout, that's not fair, God. That's not the way it's supposed to be, God. I mean, unless I missed it, unless I missed the worship song about Rebecca being in so much pain with her twins battling it out that she wants to give them back. I, I haven't heard that worship song yet, right? Because that's some of the more painful parts of life. But here's the deal. Whether you realize it or not, you want God to be fully in control because Genesis is showing us over and over, and it's going to keep showing us this. If it depends on you and me even a little bit, 
we have no hope. The only hope we have, the only way we can be saved is by grace. Because look at this story. Think about this story. This is not a story, again, of one good brother and one bad. They're both wrong. Neither of them deserves anything. The only type of people in the story are unworthy ones. That's the only type of people there are. And so grace, grace only comes to unworthy people. And it either comes by God's power, his purpose, and his process, or it's not grace. I don't know what it is, but it's not grace. Grace that is earned or owed even a little bit, it's not grace. Grace doesn't come in a cocktail, men and women. Grace is only served straight. Probably not the best analogy for church on Sunday morning, but there it is. It works. This is why it's so important. This is why it's so important to remember this, that we can trust this process. It's because when we forget that we can trust this process, we're either going to be like Jacob where you live your life saying, you know what, if it's going to be, it's up to me, and you will abuse and lie and turn into a real crummy person trying to get what you want, or you'll be like Esau, and you will sell your birthright for a measly pot of stew. All sin, all sin at its root is selling your birthright for a measly pot of stew, selling your birthright to satisfy a temporary appetite. I want what I want when I want it. And so I satisfy my appetite now instead of, instead of trusting God and his process and what, ha, what he has for me in the future. You know what? And it's so easy to think, well, we're tired like Esau and that stew smells so good. It's so easy to think in the middle of it that sin, the sin, you know, the sin is what's good and fun and pleasurable and satisfying. The trusting God part, the faith part, that's austerity. That's denial. That's sacrifice. That's starving ourselves. And that is completely backwards from what the story is telling us. No one reads the story and thinks Esau got a good deal, right? No, Esau is a fool. He is a fool because he traded countless material and spiritual blessings for a measly pot of stew. And it wasn't even the meat stew that he liked. It was the weird vegetarian substitute stew. That's the way it always works. That's the way it always works with sin. Sin always promises more than it delivers. Every time. You should trust God's process because it is God alone that will ultimately satisfy you. I don't think anyone has ever said this better than C.S. Lewis. He said it this way. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Men and women, we are so many times Esau, far too easily pleased. So it's worth asking, where in your life are you far too easily pleased? What is your stew that would beckon you to sell your birthright? Remember this always, sin is settling. It is trading a lottery ticket birthright for some red stuff. Faith. Faith means trusting the process enough to wait for what's better. And this is the way.
thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.